You can open your Bibles if you have them uh, to Genesis chapter 15. That's where we're studying God's Word this week. I guess for these few short weeks that you don't have the slides, you have to go back to old-fashioned, normal Christian times where you got to bring a Bible to church. And so we're in, gen- or well, or use your phone, right? So even then, you've always got it with you, the ESV app or something like that. Genesis 15, we're going to start in verse 7. Hear the Word of God. And God said to Abram, I am Jehovah who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord Jehovah, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then Jehovah said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession." And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day Jehovah cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You know, I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord this morning, but what I do know is that the gospel makes some really big promises. And as God's people, we hold on to those promises. Uh, you know, God, God provo- pro- promises us provision to care for us. We pray the bread part of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And, uh, you know, we pray that regularly and we ask for God. Well, you know, as a, as a pastor with five kids, I used to pray for my cars so that they would stay running because I've never owned a new car. But God has provided nonetheless and answered those prayers God promises that you'll have power over sin. That's a huge one. Because if you're like me, you just find that you're still in the struggle. And some days you wonder if it's getting any better. And yet the gospel promises power. Not only is the penalty of sin gone, but the power of sin is gone. And then God promises eternal life. My wife Sherry is a hospice nurse. And we talk about death a lot in our house. And uh, sometimes I'm grieved by what her patients are going through. And she's an angel of mercy in the midst. And when you're at that stage in your life, man, you're really holding on to the promise of the resurrection and that eternal life is real. And then if you're in a struggle, you're holding on to the gospel promise that there is not only purpose in your suffering, but that you'll have strength in your suffering, that, that there's not randomness in the world, and, and that the promise that God holds all things together by the word of his power, that it's a real promise. 
So we each come into worship this morning wondering what's going on in our own life and in the world and, and, and sometimes doubting the promises of God. You know, for the, when you read the book of Thessalonians, you find out that they'd been told that they'd miss a second coming. That's really big. And they were really worried about that. It wasn't just a movie on Netflix. It was really what they thought had happened. And, and if you read the book of Hebrews, you find out the persecution for Jewish Christians was so real in the early century that they were turning back to Moses. And we see that in India, that if you'll turn back to, to Shiva, if you'll turn back to Hinduism, then immediately all the struggle goes away. And so they were wondering if God was going to help them persevere and and keep his promises. And so when we read the story of Abram, where we are this morning, you find out that God made four big promises to Abram. I don't know if you remember what they are, but here they are. He promised him a people that from his loins and from his heart would come a people that were too big to number. And he promised them a specific plot of land. We even read that promise again this morning. And uh, he promised them his presence, his blessing, that he would never leave him. And then he promised them that he would be a, that God would be a blessing to him so that he would be a blessing to the nations and all the nations would be blessed through Abram. And in our story this morning, we're finding that Abram has some doubt about the promise of God, specifically the promised land. And so we're going to look at that and see if we can gather some encouragement from the gospel to take us to the table. So I have, all good sermons have three points, so of course this one does. So uh, three things I want to share with you about the gospel. The first is Abram's doubts and fear. You know, Abram is having doubts about the land. You can immediately, if you know the story, you can see some immediate hurdles. First of all, he's not a young man, he's old. And uh, I'm 57, and he's got 20 years on me. And so you're wondering what kind of energy he has to have that he's supposed to take over the whole promised land. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a big area with a small family. So his hurdle first is his age. He's supposed to be winding down, and things are winding up for the promises of God. And then his family's really small. We didn't read the first six verses of this part of the story, but in, in the first verses, he's having doubts about his heir because he doesn't have the promised son yet that God has promised him. And so in the ancient world, if you didn't have a son and you're a wealthy man, you adopt a grown man to make as your heir. And so, so Abram's had to do that. So he's already having doubts about his son as well. They're getting old and, and they don't expect to have children. And so he's got a really small family and he's supposed to take over a land that's as big as North Georgia. It's like, uh, it's like coming in and telling Andrew and the Henleys that they've got to take uh, Atlanta for Jesus. It, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a big place. And, uh, and so He's settled with the promise of a child. He can see that maybe happening, though it it would be a miracle. And so uh, verse 6 says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But the land promise is in the future. And he just can't see it. So this chapter starts and fills us with the doubts that Abraham has about how God is going to work his promises out. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this is one of the five books of Moses, and Moses wrote this, and he wrote this, or he at least told these stories to Israel while they're at Mount Sinai building the tabernacle. So they spent a year there, 
after they cross the Red Sea. And so they have to have their, they've been 400 years without the gospel, and they have come to believe in the idolatry of Egypt. You can see that in the prophets all over the place, that they were following idols in Egypt, and they had fallen away from the true faith. And so Moses has to start over. So he starts over with the story of creation, sin, redemption, the promises, and the patriarchs. And so Israel's hearing these stories, and these stories are meant to give them courage and encouragement because they're having big doubts about the promised land. They've just left Egypt, and they're unsure about what's next, and there's a wilderness ahead. And if you know the story, when they actually get to the promised land, their doubts are so big that they turn away and curse God because they're afraid that their children and their wives won't be taken care of. So as you're reading this this morning, I wonder what your doubts are about the gospel, about its provision, about forgiveness and reconciliation, about power over sin and the things that God promises you. What what are you struggling with? Maybe it's your job. Or maybe you're having your struggles in, in, in your family. My, my kids are all grown, and my youngest is 25. And those of you who are there with me know that parenting grown kids is way more stressful than parenting little kids or even teenagers. Teenagers were the good years. Now, well, you got no leverage, right? They can do whatever they want because they can pay their own bills. And even if they can't pay their bills... They still won't ask for help, and they might beg for some, but they they can do whatever they want. My friend John Smed says that young parents write books on parenting and old parents write books on prayer. And 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 so you maybe you're struggling, maybe you're having some personal struggle in your family right now, and you're wondering about God's covenant promises to the children that you baptized 30 years ago or two years ago. Or, or maybe it's God's love. You're just not feeling it. May, maybe you're struggling with death and the fear of death. I, I don't know what that is. The Lord knows you, and you know what you're struggling with. And so Abram is struggling with the promises of God, and, and he's having a very real conversation with God. And so God says, okay, I hear you. And then the next part gets really strange. So he says, uh, he says bring me a heifer. You know, we're almost in Alabama. You say that. Heifer. Bring me a heifer. Three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. He just twisted their necks, wrung their necks. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now that's really strange. You can... If you visualize it, you can see it. The animals are cut, big animals, cut in half, laying out on the ground um, side by side. And it doesn't smell good. I don't don't know if you know that, but it smells really bad. There's blood everywhere. It's a sensory overload of sight and sound. And, And it's weird. And so you wonder, as you're reading your Bible, what's going on? Well, I just want to remind you that there's two key elements in Bible interpretation. The first most important rule is let the context of the passage tell you what's going on. And Moses was nice enough to tell us what this is about in verse 18. He says, on that day, Jehovah cut a covenant. It says made, but the Hebrews cut. On that day, Jehovah cut a covenant with Abram. So that's the context. 
Moses nicely tells us what the story's about. We, we still don't get it completely. And then the second principle of Bible interpretation is let the Bible interpret the Bible. The, the, uh, the only infallible interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. So turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 34. We'll go into the prophets so you know the answer to this one is strange because it's in that part of your Bible that you don't read. It's in Jeremiah 34. And we're going to read verses 18 to 20. This is, uh, this is right at the end of the life of Jerusalem as the city of God. Zedekiah is the king. He was a wicked king. He was the last king before they went into Babylon, into exile. And Jeremiah was the prophet. Starting in verse 18 of 34, we won't read the rest of it, but... And so the prophet, the Lord is saying, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. And their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. All right? So that's pretty weird, but that tells us a lot about what's going on. So in the ancient world, the ancient Near East, when you cut a covenant between the... uh, but you would uh, cut open, you would cut the animals in two, and you walk the path, you walk the walk. And you take an oath, a blood oath, and you say, may this be done to me as we've done it to the animals if I don't keep my word. And you had two kinds of treaties, two kinds of covenants. A covenant is a blood oath, it's a pact of loyalty, it's like a contract. And so... You had two kinds in the ancient world. You had a parity treaty, that's equal treaty. So you can see that like in Genesis 14 when Abram has a covenant with the king of Abimelech. They're on the same level, so they make some promises together. And then you have something that's called a suzerain treaty, and a suzerain is a fancy word for king. And so you got the big king, and you got the little king, and the little king's called a vassal. Everybody with me? I've got jet lag. I should be the first to fall asleep this morning. So if I'm still awake, you can be. And I got back on Friday. So big king, little king. So the big king takes over. It's Assyria or Babylon or Egypt. And they take over a little kingdom like Israel, like Judah. And they, and they come to the king and, and they make promises. And the big king says, I'll protect you and I'll provide for you. But you got to swear absolute loyalty to me, and here's the rules you got to keep, and and you can see all this in the book of Deuteronomy, and you got to keep these rules, and then if you don't keep the rules, then you're gonna if you keep the rules, you get these blessings, and if you don't keep the rule, you the rules you'll get cursed, and as we just read in Jeremiah 34, the primary curse is death. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the offer of the gospel, really, is to follow Jesus or die. And, and so, so the alternative is not very good. And so that's the way it was in this covenant that, that, that uh, God was making with Abram. So Abram has doubts about God's promises, and God responds by saying, let's cut a covenant. Now, how, how do you think that 
went over with Abram. Well, that didn't help him. If you read the story, that increased his fear. In fact, he's going to have a nightmare when he goes to bed that night. He's going to do what God tells him. He's going to cut the pieces, and he's going to prepare to go through the ritual with God, and it's going to cause him to fall into a deep sleep in the dark, and, uh, and he thinks the oath depends on him. That's what's going to happen, is the vassal, the, the sovereign king doesn't walk between the animals. He doesn't swear to his own hurt. He gives the hurt. And so it's the vassal who takes a blood oath and swears to their own hurt. And when they walk between the animals, they say, Be this unto me, done unto me like these animals, if I don't keep the covenant. So that's what's going on in this weird little story. It's a a covenant renewal. And it doesn't help him. It increases his fear. And... And, you know, I think there's a principle there that you find as you read the Bible and you read it here in this story, is that God's presence, you know, God's a, God's a, a, a world breaker and a world shaker, and when he comes, he breaks stuff. And, and uh, his presence and answered prayer sometimes in, immediately increases our fear. And it, it's a little messy, Because you see, the covenant that we have with him is absolute loyalty. And when he comes, he renews that covenant of loyalty. That's what we're going to do at the table this morning, is renew the covenant of loyalty. And so the first thing that happens when God comes to visit you is he's going to check your loyalty. Do you really want me? Is that what you want? It's him or me. That's the offer of the gospel, him or me. And Abram is more fearful and doubtful now than before he prayed. Because when God comes, things get messy. And Abram is thinking, okay, I asked God for assurances that I get the promise, and he's going to make me, it's all going to depend on me, to walk the walk and take over the land. That doesn't help. You know, this happens a lot in your Bible. Think about Moses. Moses was controversial. So the people of God are slaves. That's what this story's about. And they're praying, oh God, oh Jehovah, come and save us. And so God hears their prayers and he sends a Moses. And Moses has doubts. And you can read that story in Exodus, how he overcomes his doubts and God helps him. But he knows that when he gets to the Hebrews, the first thing they're going to say is, who sent you? We don't have to follow you. Who sent you? And he has some miracles worked out. And so then he goes and talks to Pharaoh on their behalf. Let my people go. And do you remember what happens next? Pharaoh says, no. And so does it get better or get worse after that? It gets immediately worse. Instead of having straw to make bricks, they have to gather their own straw and make the bricks. And they still have the same quota So God has heard their prayers, he sent his spokesman, but he doesn't come with candy and icing. He comes to promote his own plan, to reveal his own glory, and to save us from the depths of our despair, which we can't always see how deep it really is, and how much struggle there is for our heart and our lives. And so so Pharaoh immediately, what he does about the curses is he retaliates. And how, does, how do the Hebrews respond? They tell Moses to go. We've had enough of this salvation, if this is what it means. 
We don't want any more. So then God works out all the, all the, 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 the curses. Pharaoh finally gets sick of Moses and says, I don't ever want to see him again. They send him out, and they leave with the possessions, and, uh, and they get to the Red Sea, and uh-oh, there's Pharaoh right there with his army. And then God protects them with the flaming pillar, if you, if you remember the story. And then they pass through on dry land. They get to the other side, and Pharaoh's dead. Now everything's good, right? No, it's still not good. They don't have any water. They don't have anything to eat. And so they beg for food, and they get manna. And the Bible specifically says the manna is a test. What kind of test? You with me? It's a loyalty test. Do you really want to be in this covenant or not? And you can read this in the books of Moses in the first five books again and again and again. It's this question about loyalty. And then they get tired of manna and banana bread and, and uh, you know, whatever else they're making. It's all carbs, so there's no keto in this diet. And so they're all getting fat and big bellies with a shelf right here. That's what I always have, shelf from carbs. And so, so what do they cry out for next? Well, we need some protein. We want to go on the keto diet, at least go on Atkins and get rid of all his carbs. So they pray for meat. And God says, okay, if you don't like what I give you with manna, I'll give you meat. And they get it until it's coming out their ears. And then when they get to the land and they're actually ready to cross over to the promised land, Oops, then they run into the giants and the six-finger guys. And, uh, and they run away in fear. The question is, will God do it? That's always the question. Does he keep his promises? And will he do what he says he'll do? And the promised land at this point looks like a pipe dream for them, and there's too many obstacles. And you know, I think it's the same for us, beloved. Christianity requires death to self. Now, you can watch television, church, and find out that all your dreams are going to come true, and, and the prosperity gospel offers you riches and no struggle, and don't ever want to say any ne- anything negative. But I, I wonder if these people have read the Bible, because Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow after me. And a cross is something you die on. The gospel calls for extreme loyalty. You can't love your parents or your children more than Jesus. I don't like that. I don't know about you. I love my grandkids. I never worried about my kids. I was too young as a parent to know they were in danger. Now I'm an old man, and I'm worried about my grandkids all the time. They could get hurt. So it seems like too much. And here's what's happening. The Lord is carving the image of Christ in us. That's what our sanctification is. That's what it means to grow in Christ. There's a, it's, like a, it's like inside this body, there's the image of Jesus. And he's slowly carving and cutting off every part that doesn't look like Christ. And it's painful some days, isn't it? Some days it's really good. You're glad to see that stuff go. But other days, it's not so good. And it hurts. And it comes through struggle. And, and so what do we do to that? Well, then we turn to worldly ideas that don't require faith. That's what the prosperity gospel is. Well, it does require faith, but faith that only good things. And it doesn't require trust or repentance 
to, to follow worldly sayings. And we have those. When I was growing up, it was God help, helps those who help themselves. So you don't like grace? That's great. We've got cultural religion that you can follow in which you solve your own problems. But that's not working out so good for Abram because that's the first thing he's thinking. God's going to help me, uh-oh, if I help myself. And so that doesn't work. And so we create some other things. Uh, you know, we have pa- parenting courses in the church. And we teach parenting by the law, where if you do everything just right and follow the formula, what happens? Cookie-cutter covenant kids. How's that working for you? I follow those plans. They don't work, or else I just did it badly. That's a real possibility. Or uh, you know, I just asked this question in India. I, I, I learn something about India every time I go, and I've, one of the, and I've been 29 times. I'm still learning so much about the culture. And as I was teaching on the, the, the Holy Spirit this time and living by grace, One of the things that came out is that every aspect of their culture is transactional. There's not an element of grace in it. So I asked them, if you, Shiva, if you give to Shiva, what's the motivation to give? Well, so he won't curse me and he'll bless me. And I said, okay, so the offering plate goes by on Sunday morning. What's your motivation to give? And the same fellow said, so Jehovah won't curse me and he'll bless me. It's the same thing. We've reduced tithing. Tithing is part of a loyalty oath. It's not just about getting some financial blessing. And in India, we have karma. So that all works into it. It's all transactional. And I know you've been working on prayer this year in your church. It's really exciting to me because our prayer lives are really shallow in the West. Because when you have all the comfort you need, you don't pray. And you don't seek God very well. Because you see, ultimately, if your prayer life is shallow, the only thing I can infer from your life is that you think it's up to you. They're directly related to how much you think God has to do and you have to do is directly related to your prayer life. And so prayer is a loyalty test. You get that? God wants you to come to Him and ask Him for help. Ask him to work it out. He doesn't bring candy. Listen, beloved, it's way better. You know what God the Father brings us in the gospel? He gives us himself. And that's what we're celebrating at the Lord's table this morning. If God loves you, and you think he does, right? If God loves you, really loved you, what's the best gift he could give you? Well, it would have to be himself. There's nothing better than that. I don't want candy. Actually, after being in India for two weeks, I'd like a ribeye. So what God brings you is he brings you himself. Okay, that's a long point one, and here's the good news. They're not all that long, so let's go to point two. And that's God's assurance. Look at verse 13. Or verse 12, as the sun goes down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So he's having a nightmare, and in the middle of his dream, Jehovah appears to him and said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. And it goes on to talk about their service in Egypt and how they're going to break out. And uh, so the answer to his question, when am I going to inherit the land, is... 400 years. Now, imagine God coming to us and telling us this. 
We have to have a law so that we'll put our cell phone down at the light so we can be hands-free. We can't even wait until we park our cars. If I leave it there, I'll forget it. We can't even wait till we get somewhere and stop. And God says, I'm going to do it. It's just going to take 400 years. Imagine waiting 400 years. And Israel is hearing this story, and they're so encouraged, because guess how long it's been? It's been 400 years. And they hear this story from Moses, and they say, this is us. It's unbelievable. God is working his purposes out. We can have faith. The Bible says, beloved, that we're strangers in a strange land. We're tenants. We're renting property. We don't own anything. And we're besieged in America by the comfort idol that promises heaven now, your best life now. And, and, and the Bible teaches that we live in the world, that we're aliens here. We're living in Egypt and, and we don't want to wait for God to work his promises out. And we don't want to work in the long term to build his kingdom. We're praying in India for 500 million Christians. And I'm willing to wait 30 years, but no longer than that. I'm praying that God would do it in my lifetime. That when I retire from going to India at 85 or 6, that there'll be 500 million Christians. There's only 100 million. So you pray that I'll have the energy to do that and that God will answer that prayer. That he will demonstrate the power of his kingdom so well that he'll work it out in India. You know, we don't want to wait for future provision. We don't want to wait for wandering children to come home. I've got one who's far from the Lord. I don't see it. I mean, unless God does a miracle, he's not coming home soon. And some of you are in the same boat. You see, God has no obligation to work in your life in a way that meets your expectations. He is the suzerain, and we are the vassals. And he promises provision and protection and eternal life. And we promise to follow him as Lord. And he works it all out according to his plan. And he's working his purpose out in us and through us. It's better than if we were in charge. Because we don't have the vision to see what needs to happen next. I don't know if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, the, the widow of the great missionary Jim Elliot. But you know, Elizabeth and her husband Jim and four other couples, they, they went to Ecuador with the vision of reaching these these tribals, they were called the Aucas, that meant savages in the local language, because they were, and they were deathly, deathly dangerous. And so they prayed for a couple years before they even made advances. And then when they finally made the advances over about a three-month period, they got closer and closer, and finally the men landed the plane, and all five men were murdered. And immediately there were five widows on the mission field. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that Elizabeth Elliot and Nate Saint's sister went back and they brought the gospel to these people and they came to faith in a couple years. And the people that, the men that killed those husbands repented and came to faith in Christ and Jesus forgives them. And so does Elizabeth Elliot and her and the other ladies. Now let me just ask you a question. 
When Elizabeth Elliot was praying for the fame of the name of Jesus to be revealed in Ecuador and the mercy of the gospel to come forth to the savages, these tribal people in the mountains of Ecuador, do you think that she was asking God to kill her husband and the other four husbands on the team? You know, when you're in the mission like this, sometimes you pray, Lord, I'll give my life if that's what you want. And I'll gladly do it. And maybe some of you have prayed that. But I don't imagine that they were praying, Lord, even if it takes my husband's life. Maybe you pray for your own. But you see, I'm sure they never assumed that the answer, those women as they prayed, would would include the lives of their five husbands. Difficulties abound in a sinful world. And we often are waiting and waiting and and this is God's plan. He works it out in his time. And he's, remember, he's, he's after a mission in your life to carve off the parts of you that doesn't look like Jesus. And so this is Israel. This is what the Exodus is about. They're leaving the world and going to the promised land. And the Bible says that this world is judged and Satan is bound from deceiving the nations and, and, uh, and Joel mentioned it earlier that we live in the already and the not yet. We, we sang that song this morning. It's providential. We sang that song of hope and waiting. And, and it's so that our loyalty would grow. That's what God is working in us. That our loyalty, we're not two-year-olds. Our loyalty is growing. And the good news is, I, I hope it's so, the old selfish gym is slowly fading. Sherry's got a headache this morning, so you can't ask her. So I can get away with saying that it's working its way out. The old selfish gym is fading. God, God is working his plan, beloved, and it's a long plan. Have hope. All right, point three, God's deliverance. Look at verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, Jehovah made a covenant with Abram. All right, more weirdness. Was this flaming pot and a smoking torch? Or was it a smoking pot and a flaming torch? I always get it mixed up. Well, so when Israel, you can read about in Numbers 2 how they camped about the tabernacle. They, bu- they built the tabernacle and then they set up uh, t- their 12 tribal divisions around it with the Levites being the 13th. They're in the middle taking care of the tabernacle. And when their tents all faced in. So when they walked out their front door, what's the first thing they saw every day? There was the pillar of fire roaring above the tabernacle over the presence of the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant. And at night, if you walked out at night, it was a glory cloud. Well, it was a pillar at night. Actually, it's opposite, right? Willy Wonka, swap that, reverse it. The glory cloud during the day and the pillar fire at night. They could always see God's presence. So when they hear this story, they immediately think, hey, we get that too. God's there. Now here's where the gospel gets really cool. All the promises of Abram are tied together here. The people, the presence of God, the promised land. Isn't that amazing? It's all tied together right there in the flaming pot and the smoking torch. 
And not only that, but when Moses went to see the burning bush, and he, he was pulled to the burning bush because it was alive with flame and it didn't burn up, and the Bible says that it was the angel of Jehovah that spoke out of him from that bush. And the Bible says the same thing about the pillar of fire, that it's the angel of Jehovah. And if you study your Bible, you figure out that the angel of Jehovah is the pre-incarnate Christ. So what's happening in this story is there is a, in, in the dream... Abram sees the presence of God walking, passing between the animals. And the Israelites know immediately what's happening. It's God that's passing through. And so what we see here is that God takes the self-maledictory oath. He takes the blood oath. Abram goes to bed thinking he's going to have to walk when he gets up. And in his dream, he finds out that it's Jehovah that walks the walk and takes the oath against himself that he says if you don't get this land let it be done unto me and so then he gives them the Passover feast and the other feasts as covenant renewal so that they'll remember what he's done And we move to the New Testament and we move to the cross of Christ and the fulfillment of this promise right here where Jesus takes the self-maledictory oath and he goes to the cross and he takes the curse for us so that the promises of God will come true because if it's up to us, it would never happen, beloved. That's even what verse 6 is about when it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Jesus says, Abram saw me, and he was glad. And, and so the, God's going to keep his promises, and it depends completely on him. Not Abram, not Moses, not the tribes, not your tribe. And God's judgment on the sins of the Amorites is going to bring salvation to Israel. And there's a whole other sermon there about how always God comes in judgment and salvation and he's not going to give he's not going to give the land of the sinful amorites to sinless israelites they're not sinless because he has to keep the covenant for them and so the land is completely defined and israel hears this and they know this is where they're headed to and you get to the new covenant and it's the new heavens and the new earth and beloved our hope is Our hope is that we're waiting for God to work his whole kingdom out. And God is not slow to keep his promises as some people count slow because a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Time is nothing. And my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 8.32 where Paul says that if God has already given us his most precious gift, the Lord Jesus, won't he freely give us all things? So you see in this story, God removes our fears through the cross. And Jesus has done everything in his life and his death to provide eternal life and the fulfillment of God's promises. And Christ is always with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He passes through the animals on our behalf. Isn't that incredible? Now here's the bad news. If you're trusting in your own covenant faithfulness and in your own strength and in your own self-discipline to cast out your fear and your doubt, well, then the bad news is is that you'll keep your fears 
And your faith is bound to waver. And the further bad news is that if you don't think the cross is necessary, then you may still be lost. God's presence through the cross is a loyalty test. Will you hold on to your sin and your self-will and your own plan for your life like the Amorites? Or will you trust in Jesus like Abram did? And... And so that leads us to the good news. It's incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of doubting God's promise and presence. And he rose from the dead to give us new life and power over sin and power over fear and doubt. And Jesus fully trusted God in our place so that we would have the power to trust God. And he says he will never leave us or forsake us. And so the answer that the gospel gives is a cry out to Jesus. He will come and he will hear. And he passes through the animals on our behalf. You see, we fear our future and we have doubts about the promise of God. But God's grace in the Lord Jesus removes those doubts. So you see, Jesus, the story is that Jesus takes our responsibility for the covenant upon himself. Just as Abram saw right here in this story. And I want you to notice, I don't know if you saw this, but Jesus is going to play both parts. He's the seed, the promised seed of Abraham, who walks in perfect faithfulness, taking the covenant redemption oath as the vassal in our place. Jesus is the vassal. And he's the self-sacrificial suzerain offering himself. Beloved, there is no God like our God, who does all the parts of grace for us, even brings judgment on his own house in order to bring salvation to us. God delivers us from fear and doubt by his continual presence and one prayer that he always answers. If you ask for more of him, he'll give it. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. We'll stand for prayer. The elders can come forward. Father, we thank you for your gospel, for your grace once again. Thank you for your word to us. Sometimes, Lord, your word's a little weird, and then we see it begin to see it work out. And so we pray that you would work it out in us, that you would embolden us to trust in the grace of the Lord Jesus once again to walk between the animals for us as he did at the cross. And to continue from heavenly places to watch over us and guard us by sending us more of his spirit. Our prayer is simple, Lord, is that you would increase our faith so that we would walk in newness of life and trust and hope as you take us through the struggle of carving off the not Jesus that's in our life. And as you do that, we'll gladly give you glory and take no boast upon ourselves. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.